If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. I was listening Friday to a tape of a debate called Quran or Bible, which is God's Word, featuring Ahmed Didat, director of the Islamic Propagation Center International. Didat is perhaps the world's most famous and prolific Muslim apologist. So I was expecting interesting and challenging arguments for him, from him, but uh, it turned out to be really poor stuff, demonstrably bogus and easily refutable. One of his arguments, one of his attempts to tear down the Bible, consisted of turning to the genealogy recorded in the first eight chapters of First Chronicles. And he read out some of the names from chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Haftuhim, Patrusim, Kasluhim. And then he tried to mock it, saying, Why would God put this stuff into his holy book? Now, Didat's error here should be very obvious. Unless he himself is God, who is he to decide what God should or should not put into his book? In other words, the authenticity of God's word doesn't depend on whether it fits what Didat thinks it should be. But it does raise an interesting question here. In fact, a great deal of the Bible is taken up with a lot of fine historical details. Not just genealogies, but details about people migrations, encounters, politics, battles, even architectural details. And to some people, this all seems so unnecessary. Why not drop it all out? It would certainly make the Bible shorter and easier to read. Why did God put all that history into the Bible? Why couldn't he just give us the parts that we're supposed to believe and the uh, the instructions about how we are to live, you could probably put all that into something no longer than a comic book. The Quran certainly doesn't have much history in it. It's got a handful of Old Testament stories and the, the very corrupted versions found in the Jewish Talmud and some apocryphal material scattered here and there haphazardly, repeated over and over and completely divorced from any temporal context. But the Bible has a consistent and detailed sweep through the whole of human history from the creation of the world to about the year A.D. 62 and even a look ahead at the final end of it all, the end of history, after Jesus returns and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You see, the Bible isn't a book that came from one man popping up at one time saying, here it is, God's message, the ultimate truth, take it or leave it. That's what Muhammad did. That's what Buddha did. But it's not what the Bible does. 
God at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets and has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1.1. The Bible is made up of what is called progressive revelation. God unfolds his purposes and his self-disclosure through the sweep of real human history. Christianity is, is an historical religion. It does not stand or fall on the airy, fairy, grandiloquent claims of some lone would-be prophet intoning, God send me, believe it, believe it. No, the message of the Bible has been revealed in and through real and verifiable historical events. And that makes history important. And that bears mentioning. Because so many people seem to think history is not important. You start talking about history and immediately many people's eyes glaze over or they start rolling in their eye sockets or it's, wake me when it's over or boring. What's this got to do with me? Why can't we move on to the important stuff? And most people have a big black hole in their heads where historical knowledge ought to reside. But history is important to God and to God's people. Look at how many times in the Bible God appeals to history. How many times He calls upon people to remember what happened in the past. Our reading this morning, Hebrews 3, 7-19, is just one example. Here the writer is calling upon the readers to remember the events that took place after the Exodus. Now these happened almost 1,500 years before the book of Hebrews was written. It's 1,500-year-old history to them. It's separated from those readers by about as much time as the fall of the Roman Empire separated from us. It was ancient history to those readers, but they could learn from it. The writer to Hebrews, in fact, is actually quoting here from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11, written by David somewhere around 1000 BC. In David's day, the history there was more than 400 years old. The history of the Exodus. It was separated from his day by about the same period as the Reformation is from us. But they could learn from it. Remember what happened in the past, wrote David. Remember how that generation that came out of Egypt rebelled against God. They put God to the test and God proved himself, but that generation paid the price for their rebellion. They did not inherit the rest that God had planned for them. Learn from history, wrote David, or more properly, the Holy Spirit through David. More than 400 years later, if God calls you now, you can make the same mistake that the Exodus generation made. You can harden your hearts. But history will tell you that God is true and right, and you will pay the price if you harden your hearts against Him. Don't make the same mistake. Learn from history, wrote the author to the Hebrews about 1,500 years later. Remember what happened to the Exodus generation. Don't repeat their mistakes. Learn from history. As the Spanish philosopher, poet, novelist, George Santayana put it in his famous dictum, 
those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Or as the 19th century Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck put it, a fool learns from his mistakes, a wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Learn from the mistakes that people have made in the past, or you will repeat them. And we see this throughout the Bible. Stephen, the deacon in Acts chapter 7, on trial for his life before the Sanhedrin. Acts 7, it's a long chapter. Why? Because standing before the Sanhedrin, he recapitulates the entire history of the Jewish people. From Abraham on down to Jesus. And you may wonder why he does that. But as you look through it, you will see that Stephen is appealing to the lessons of history. God made a promise to Abraham. And when the time of the promise drew near, God raised up Moses to be the deliverer. But how did the Jews react? Look at verses 26 to 29. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled. But God brought Moses back and accomplished the deliverance he intended to do through Moses. But how did the Jews react? Look at verse 37 to 41. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then Stephen sums up the point he's getting at in verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Look at your history, he says. Every time God moves in an act of deliverance, you have always opposed him. You have rejected him, and it has always blown up in your face. Now he is again moving in an act of deliverance. The act of deliverance. Jesus, the Christ, the prophet foretold by Moses. Learn from what happened in your history, and this time don't oppose him. But they didn't learn from history, did they? They just killed off Stephen as their fathers killed the prophets. 
you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. Or what about Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7? Second Peter 3, 3 to 7. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You should remember history. The history of creation. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you should remember the flood because it's another chilling testimony that yes, God will punish iniquity. But those scoffers in Peter's day willfully forgot those facts of history so that they could walk according to their own lusts. And doesn't that fit today's society to a T? We have willfully forgotten the historical facts of creation and the flood replacing them with evolution and uniformitarianism, so that we may proclaim that there is no God to answer to, so that we may walk according to our own lusts. We just don't learn from history. And these appeals to remember history are not only in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of them too. God saying again and again, Remember that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember what I did for you. Tell your children what I did for you. Ezra and Nehemiah, both appealing to the history of their people, marked by God's grace, met with repeated rebellion and punishment. And the consequences, Ezra and Nehemiah remind the people of this to urge them to turn away from this path and usher in revival. Micah 6, verses 4 to 5. Just one more example. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. I could go on all day with example after example like this, all saying, remember history, learn from history. Now this principle is perhaps best summed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 to 11. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 5 to 11. And again, this is Paul referencing the people who were brought out of Egypt. And he writes, With most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The events of history serve as examples. They were written for our warning and our instruction. Folks, the history recorded in the Bible ends in the first century AD. But God's activity has not ended. He has been active in the world and in His church ever since. And that means we can learn from post-biblical history as well. It can also serve as examples to us. Now, of course, post-biblical history is not as clear as biblical history, as we don't have explicit commentary on the events from God. And don't get me wrong, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe that Scripture all by itself is able to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in that sense, history is not necessary, but it is helpful. It's very helpful. We can learn from it as it illustrates biblical truths in action. And that's why, contrary to some people's opinions, it is important for Christians to study history. We can learn from the mistakes the church has made in the past. I'll give you just one example of this. There are others. The current issue of Citizen Center Report magazine. There's an article, or really it's an op-ed piece by the Byfields, with the interesting title, The Bishop of Oxford Wants to Tone Down Jesus' Language. How odd that Jesus didn't. According to the Byfields, the, quote, the bishop thinks Christians should tone down some of the things that Jesus said because they might offend modern people, even revolt them, and thereby discourage them from joining the church. He cites in particular the sacrificial, cannibalistic language of the Lord's Supper. He says that we should qualify the imagery in order to help people realize that this is metaphor. We should use images such as the bread of life instead. Now, the Byfields castigate the bishop, saying that Jesus was very much in your face on a great many occasions and didn't change his language to avoid offense. They go on to say this, and, and pay attention here, quote, It's also noteworthy that the early church did not follow the bishop's advice either. One of the charges repeatedly laid against the first Christians was that of cannibalism. They were accused of eating the body and blood of this crucified Jew they worshipped. Some witnesses reported them drowning people, pushing their heads into the water and pouring water over them, mumbling something about baptism. They were also charged with incest. Did they not actually speak of loving their brothers and sisters? Now, if the early church had been reasonable and followed the advice of the Bishop of Oxford, they would have stopped all this and done something more compatible with the usages of the 1st and 2nd century Roman Empire. But instead, they simply obeyed Jesus. Unquote. Now, you probably know I'm first in line to object if some churchman wants to water down biblical truth. But as far as we can tell from this article, the Bishop of Oxford is not calling for that. 
What he wants to do is make sure people understand exactly what the church is teaching. I don't see why the Byfields should object to using the term bread of life when Jesus himself used that term to describe himself. See, if people misunderstand what we are teaching, it is not obeying Jesus to leave them confused. Do the Byfields really think that if the world thinks by loving one another we mean that we get together for orgies, that it is somehow glorifying to Christ to let them keep thinking that? Is that obeying Jesus? Or if they misunderstand baptism, they think we're drowning people, then, oh yeah, let them think that. That's obeying Jesus. That's a good idea. Now, the biblical principle is to make the gospel clear to people and not leave stumbling blocks for them. Habakkuk 2.2 The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain. 2 Corinthians 1.13 For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand. Acts chapter 8 The account of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. This ought to be so obvious. We should present the gospel clearly and we should not allow misunderstandings to remain. But the early church, and the Byfields are correct about this, the early church did not clear up the misunderstandings. And just kind of bullheadedly went along and let people think they were drowning people, eating people and having orgies. And what was the result of that? An awful lot of unnecessary persecution. At the end of the day, the world will hate you and you will face persecution, but don't give them reason to do it. Don't put stumbling blocks before people. There was havoc in the church as the leaders were killed off, and that, that weakened the church and opened it for corruption from false teachers. Because they didn't make things clear. You know that maybe there would be no Islam today? No Jehovah's Witnesses if Christians had perhaps cleared up their misunderstandings about the Trinity? Muhammad thought Christians worship three gods. God, Jesus, and Mary. And he rightly rejected that idea. What if some Christian had actually explained to him what we really believe? Maybe you want to run off on this, this tangent, this Islam thing. And maybe more Jews would come to Christ today if we cleared up that misapprehension they have that all Gentiles are Christians, which means Hitler was a Christian. History, church history shows us that it is a bad idea to let misunderstandings about Christianity remain. But some, like these Byfields, haven't learned from history. And there are a lot of other situations like this where we need to learn from the mistakes of the past. And if we don't learn from the mistakes of history, we will repeat them. There's an old adage that says, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Our historical ignorance puts us in danger of being fooled twice on a whole bevy of issues. So let's learn from history. Let's not repeat its mistakes. Because those who don't learn from history, who think history doesn't matter, it's not important, let's get on to the important things, are just begging Fool me twice. Thank you for listening to the Truth in My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, 
Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.